we are by design sexual beings. So today I wanted to share with you a remix version of my talk I had in my previous channel, Third Drive Stage, with my friend, Dr. Joe Bean, who's a sexologist, where I ask Dr. Bean the kinds of questions most of us have. So let's talk about sex. Here we go. How is sex different, or sexuality in general, the urges, sort of how we see the, see sexuality and sex in general, for a 20-year-old, early 20s, mid-20s, you know, young adult, and let's say a 40-year-old? But the thing is, it's up until a human being is around 25-ish, now this is not an exact number, like, oh, I turn 25 tomorrow, that's when this happens. But up until about then, the brain is still continuing to develop. So here we have younger people and they have that sex drive. It can be pretty strong. Plus a curiosity like, wow, I looked at that girl and something happened inside of me and I, I've never felt this before. Or the girl kisses a guy and all of a sudden she's tingling head to toe and she's thinking, oh, my goodness, what is this? Yet the decisions about what they're going to do with that will not be quite as mature most of the time as those who are older than that. And so sex drive tends to be stronger now. There is a feeling, this is not absolutely proven, uh, that a guy's sex drive will peak somewhere in late teens or early 20s. So like 21, 22, he's peaked out. But that women start peaking in their sex drive in the early 30s. And actually, there is some research about this. The most fulfilling sex we'll have is going to be in our 50s and 60s. It's because we have changed. We have we look at life differently than we did before. Relationships become more important to us. So young people, strong sex drive, it's not necessarily about a relationship. It's about hormones. As we get older, hopefully it develops more into about relationships coupled with the sex drive until finally the relationships become the be all end all. That's the most important thing to it. And so I was at, uh, I was in Sydney uh, a few years ago at the, uh, Sydney, Australia, at the World Congress of Sexual Health. And they were predicting that marriage was doomed. And the reason that we're saying that is it's going to be because of sex. In other words, most of the world in my age group grew up thinking that sex was going to be with one partner in all likelihood. And now they're growing up learning sex from internet pornography, which makes them, which makes part of their schema. Everybody wants to have sex all the time, any day, anywhere, any position, any opening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they develop an expectation that the sexologists are pointing out is an impossibility to fulfill. Because it's not real. Not real. Even the porn stars aren't that turned on. <laughs> they don't want to have sex seven times a day, seven days a week. They don't. They have sex because they get paid. You follow? And so right. we look at this and go, so take the other problems with marriage, add to it the fact that now I'm sexually dissatisfied because I was brought up with a schema that you need to have lots and lots of partners. And so then it stays about sex and never does really come about the relationship. And we are seeing that all over the world right now where people, uh, about half of the adult population of the USA, for example, uh, is single. Okay. Now by choice, is that what you're saying? Not necessarily. There's a lot of them that want to be married, but they, not, not everyone, some people are very happy being single, but a lot of them want to be married. But here's the problem. You can find a lot of people who will use you, 
but it's difficult to find somebody who will truly love you. I look back and I go, I wish I only knew Deb, my wife, yes. sexually, right? right. Um, and yet there's, I think there's such a thing as grace and neuroplasticity and yeah, it, it repairs. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to sort of become healthy in this, right? Marriage wise. And right. uh, I'm very happy uh, in one relationship, you know, we've been married for 22 years yeah. now. Yeah, not, I, and so I'm glad you brought that up. I probably made it sound like it can't be done. It can, mm -hmm. but typically doesn't just automatically happen. So it's a it process. takes really wanting to develop this relationship. I right. worked with a couple a few years ago, and uh, she was wanting to leave him. Very handsome, about 25 years old, uh, and both of them handsome, pretty people, intelligent, smart people. And so I asked her. Now he was not standing there; he was across the room. So I asked her. I said, "So what's wrong with this guy?" And she said, "I'm just, I just can't get sexually turned on by him." And so as a sexologist, I ask a question that a sexologist typically would ask, which is, how old were you when you had your first sexual experience? She said, 16. Hmm. And how old were you when you married this guy? And she said, 21. I said, okay, in those five years, how many different lovers did you have? She said, 60, six, zero. In other words, an average of about one a month. And I said, okay, that's why you're having trouble getting turned on with him. He can't be 60 different people. Can I ask you like a very, very direct question? Does okay. size matter? All our lives heard about breast men and, and butt men. Forgive butt men, me. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, like that's what really excites me is seeing that round shape back there, et cetera, et cetera. So it really does vary some with the individual. But... When it comes down to if you develop the right kind of relationship and really pay attention to each other, the size is not that big a deal. Uh, the vagina, for example, is about two to three inches deep, but it's, it's made kind of like an accordion, if you will, where you can actually lengthen. It can go up six, seven, sometimes eight inches. And, and most men from the time where their, their penis, their erection starts, you know, if you were going from there on his body to hers, I probably it's rare anybody can go that deep. But the vagina can accommodate that. So can it accommodate just as well one that's two or three inches? Actually, it can. And typically what you find is if a woman's having some difficulty with size, it's more psychological than physiological. And so size typically is either going to be effective. If it's going to affect him negatively, it's either because he thinks I'm not manly enough because I'm not as big as I think I'm supposed to be, or... Or she's thinking he's not man enough because he's not the size I was taught he was supposed to be, or a mismatch of the genital connection. In other words, so most of the time, what you're saying is really more psychological and perception-wise, right? It's in your head. The average uh, erection length of an American is five and a quarter inches. There's actually that, research on that? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. And so that means that, that most guys are within that range within about a half an inch. Really? Now, are there some guys who are bigger? Yes. Some guys who are smaller? Yes. And believe it or not, the, the size is not particularly influenced by ethnicity. Oh, that's a myth. <laughs> most of the time. But these are all questions that we all think of and sometimes don't ask. Uh, so thank you for doing that. You've been married for 20, 30, 40 years is how much of it is relational, spiritual, physical? Give me, give me the range of, of ideas. 
Okay. Basically, after a, a couple's been making love to each other for about two years, and it's not a magic like it's tomorrow, but roughly two years, they go into a thing called sexual habituation. And sexual habituation basically says there's nothing really special about this because we've experienced everything there is to experience. And if you're concentrating just on the physical, that's pretty much true. You've seen everything there is to see. You've touched everything there is to touch, etc. And so if it doesn't develop into be more about the relationship, then people experience the thing eventually called sexual boredom. I'm bored. This is the same old, same old. And some of the research I did, for example, Christian, I was asking women, uh, is there anything that has significantly reduced your sexual attraction to your spouse? And when it came down to one of the things, one of the, uh, this one was up around like, oh, I can't remember the exact number, but like 17% of them said, yeah, he's not a very good lover. <laughs> and therefore it has decreased my sexual attraction to my spouse. Interestingly, some of the men said the same thing about their wives. If you concentrate just on the physical, you get past that. And the next thing you'll want is to be with somebody else. So you can start physicality all over again. And so the you're idea basically you're basically counting that okay maybe I'll, I'll look for something more exciting this is essentially a non-solvable problem for me he's boring she's boring she's not, very good. she's not very adventurous that kind of thing right it is solvable based on what you're looking for i hope this is not too crude an illustration but a lady i was working with a few years ago she'd gone on a cruise without her husband with some of her girlfriends and one night she's out walking the deck in the moonlight in the caribbean it's beautiful some handsome guy puts some moves on her and he's smooth. And so finally they wind up in a little alcove up on the deck. So they're still outside and, and he uh, performs oral sex on her. She comes back from that. And now she has first session with me and she said, the rest of my life, I'm looking for that kind of sex. And I can't get that with my husband to which I replied, you'll never have that sex again. If you're back on that same ship with the same guy, it won't happen again. Don't you understand that you had a sensual, a sensual situation that's rare and it's not going to be repeated. And, and that same guy would wind up being somebody you're bored with eventually if it's all about the sex. Okay, so if it's not open marriage, if it's not, let's spice it up with going outside of our marriage. If it's not, hey, you know, this guy on a cruise was attractive and I was bored. You know, what do you, how do you, how do you keep the spark going? Open marriages are becoming more common in America. Uh, and typically Christian is kind of anti, uh, uh, anti-intuitive. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's a uh, contradiction to what you would expect. Uh, I haven't seen research on that, particularly in four or five years now, because I just don't research that. But the last time I was reading the research on open marriages, uh, what they used to call swinging back in the day is that uh, more, many more people in that practice are conservative people than liberal people. Okay. So for example, more Christians than non-Christians, more Republicans than Democrats, uh, more middle America than the coast, which are considered generally speaking to be more liberal. And so it's kind of counterintuitive, like, really? Why? Interesting. They somehow think it's gonna spice up the marriage. We do have a sexual design to make babies. Okay, right. that's right. If you believe that God, then that's what he said to Adam and Eve. Go multiply, be fruitful. If you don't believe in God, think about nature. It's built us in such a way as to make more people. I mean, and all the animals are just the same, that kind of stuff. And if it's just physical, 
then you can do that. But, but we human beings are something far beyond that. We're really designed not just to have a body meet body. We're designed for a blending of two people emotionally, mentally. So when you look at the studies about love, uh, there's a guy named Sternberg who's done some fascinating research on it. And, and he points out that that love between like a man and a woman has three major components, intimacy, but that's not talking about sex. Intimacy means openness, vulnerability, transparency, connection. And then there's passion. And while that does have a strong sexual component, even that's not just about sex. It's about craving, sharing life with each other. And then, of course, the third dimension would be commitment. Isn't, isn't by the same token, the reverse true? So why do people want to have an affair or even sort of be in agreement with each other for an open marriage? I think what drives them a lot of the time is not the, the lack of variety or sexual experiences, what drives them is precisely the marriage is not providing the intimacy. It's not providing transparency. It's not providing these dimensions that are sort of core and needed. We want them in our bones and we just, we just, we've lost it, right? We've lost it. And I'm stuck in this, you know, what we can call loveless marriage or passionless marriage. And he doesn't listen to me. She doesn't listen to me. She doesn't care about me. He doesn't respect me. All of those things are non-sexual things that drive people to this state of extreme dissatisfaction. You know, people don't cheat. These are cheating is risky, right? Even open marriage. I'm sure people understand at some at some level that this is a risky endeavor that can lead to something that is very inconvenient, like divorce. It's very inconvenient and and costly. But still, costly. people, yeah, they take the risk because they're they're almost compelled to do it, right? It's it's at some point, at some level, irrational, right? So how do you, like when, when you guide people in, in marriage help or save my marriage, all of those sort of workshops and, and things that you do, how do you, how do you help them with the non-sexual stuff? There's a guy named Brian Alexander. I don't know if he still does this or not, but for a while he was the sex exploration columnist for MSNBC. And he wound up eventually writing a book called America Unzipped. Now, I'm not necessarily recommending the book, okay? But America Unzipped, nine chapters. And each chapter is about part of the sexual subculture of America, okay? okay? One of the chapters is about me. He actually considered me to be part of the sexual subculture of America. Is that, that right? Here I, yeah, that here I am, a Christian, talking openly about sex and, and how people can be fulfilled and et cetera, which he just found fascinating. Now, <clears throat> in seven of the nine chapters, he quotes me. He said, I asked Beam this. People that are going to the sex clubs to have sex with a bunch of different people at night or hanging out in the strip clubs or whatever else. He said, do you think they're looking for the same thing people are looking for that go to church? How would you have answered that, Christian? I would say they crave the same thing. Right. They don't know how to look I think what they're craving is oneness. There that's you go. what they're craving. That's correct. And that's what I said to him. I said, in that sense, yes, they're looking for the same thing people go to. They go to church, but just they're not going to find it there. Just like a lot of people don't find it at church <laughs> because they're looking at the wrong things. But it's agony, isn't it? We, I think that's that's sort of the point. The point is it is so much of a craving that we are willing to sometimes risk 
our emotional well-being or financial well-being to get it and we just don't know where to find it uh once a month i would go into the number one rock and roll station in town with woody and jim in the morning and and for an hour people would call and ask me relationship questions but one lady called in it was on wednesday i was on the air that that time and she said i'm getting married saturday congratulations she said i'm a virgin i said well congratulations again she said so my friends are telling me i should go out tonight and pick up some guy at a bar and have sex so that you know i can have experience more than one man in my life because i'm getting married on saturday I would say don't do it. It's a terrible idea. No. But this is obviously, I'm a 52-year-old guy who has thought about this deeply and been married happily for 22 years. So, you know, I think I've, I think if I was her, you know, in my early 20s, I would have probably said the exact same thing to to her as her friends have, right? If you marry this guy and you're a virgin, he's going to be the best lover you've ever had. Period. Right. If you go out tonight and have sex with some guy. Suppose there's just something unique and unusual about him and it makes him really, really good in bed. And then your husband doesn't have that same skill. Now you're going to be comparing the two of them thinking, well, why did I get married? Or why should I have married? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I said, what you're doing is you're sacrificing your future. It sounds exciting now, but it's going to mess up things in the future. So this other lady calls in right behind that and she said, I can verify what you're talking about, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. What's that? My boyfriend kept pushing until I finally had a threesome with him and his best friend. Then he broke off our engagement and said he can't possibly marry me because he can't get the picture in his mind out, out of his mind of my doing sexual things with his best friend. Are we monogamous because we're culturally conditioned or perhaps religiously conditioned? Or are we monogamous because we were wired for monogamy ultimately? What's your what's your take on that? It seems to me, and of course I'm I'm a Christian, so I look at the Bible a lot of times. And in the Old Testament you'll find these guys like Abraham that had several wives. And right. so you look at that and go, maybe we're we're not meant to be monogamous, except for the fact when you read those stories, almost inevitably there's one woman who stands out as the one that he loves the most. In that sense, I really do think we're wired to be monogamous. Now, if you were just a pure evolutionist, you would say, hmm, well, evolutionary uh, theory would say we had to be monogamous so that the children got taken care of by the father. But now that that, uh, that we don't have to worry about the bears and the, and the saber-toothed tigers and whatever else, you know, then, then uh, we'd have no reason for monogamy any longer. But see, that's based on a premise that you started to begin with. It's like, I made up the premise. They did it so that the father would protect the children. Now, once I accept that premise as a fact, then I can make all kinds of speculations off that, which all sound like fact, but they all started on a premise that's not valid or that's not proven. Let me say it that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which is the way most people think. But personally, do I think people are wired for monogamy? Yeah. In my story, uh, Alice and I were married for 15 years. Then I divorced Alice left her for another woman that fell apart. And then I wound up um, with a lot of different women and the three years that Alice and I were apart. And I realized people are looking at me right now saying, how I looked better back then. I looked better back then. And so <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, Alice and I remarried each other. And 
where there are more exciting sexual experiences and those three years of just sleeping with different women. Yeah, they had different degrees of skills, different body types, different et cetera, et cetera. But the one that's the most fulfilling by far to the point where I would sacrifice if I had opportunity to do that stuff again, I wouldn't do it because I like what I have now, which is this close, intimate, passionate, not not as sexual as it was when we were younger, but passion in the sense of wanting to share life with each other and, and commitment. And that's why sex in the 50s and 60s winds up being so good, according to Snarsh. He's, he did the research and wrote the book. It's because we can now just completely meld into each other because a lot of other things are not pulling us as much. And that's really what it's all about. Even Peggy Kleinplatz, who was a Canadian researcher, uh, two different research projects with different sets of colleagues about what's the difference between good sex and great sex. And she comes up with like seven or eight different things. Uh, and both studies wound up with the same things, and, which is good. Okay, that shows consistency. And if you look at it, I could I could preach those from a pulpit. Let's pause the, the whole Christian thing, right? As a researcher, uh, as a sexologist, when you when you listen to the national conversation on gender and sexuality, the like the redefinition of this repositioning, all of all of that stuff that's going on, really in the West, pretty pretty much at fever high levels. What do you see, not as a Christian, not as a believer, but as a, as a as a scientist, as a sexologist? Uh, in most states in the USA, uh, you're not considered to have enough maturation to make certain decisions until you reach a certain age. So, you legally until you're 17 or 18 or whatever that state says. And so let's say that it's, it's 18 and you wind up having sex with a girl the night before she turns 18, they're still going to get you a statutory rape, even though it's only a few hours difference because you have to draw the line somewhere. And then if you're going to vote, you're going to be a certain age. If you're going to drink, you've got to be a certain age, etc. But we now live in a world where a six year old can decide that he or she wants to change gender and physicians, and parents will yield to that. While we don't believe that that six-year-old can make a decision about sex, a rational decision, until they're 17 or 18. We don't believe they can make a rational decision about alcohol until they're old. That a rational decision about who to vote for until they're old. All those kinds of things. But at this age, they can make a decision to change their gender. And so people start giving them hormones or refusing hormones and those kinds of things to finally get them to where they want to be. I taught, I mentioned that to one of my classes I was teaching at a university here as an adjunct professor. And, and I said, what do you guys think about that? And this beautiful uh, senior, I got mostly juniors and seniors in my class, raised her hand and uh, she said, I wanted to be a boy so bad when I was a kid, but I'm very happy I'm a girl. Wow. And so we're looking at that going, we're living in a culture that seems to want to rearrange the world to the detriment of somebody's physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and they don't have the maturation to make those decisions. How can anybody think that's right? But that's the world in which we live. And so that group, the, oh, what is it? You may have heard of me. Um, NAMBLA, something like that, North American Men Boy Love Association. Okay. They actually have conventions and stuff, and, and they're trying to figure out an agenda where over a period of time they can convince America 
that it's just natural that that boys should learn about sex from men who want to have sex with them. And they they have an agenda over X number of years to get that That's to be legal. I did not know this. Mm -hmm. So we're living in a culture that's more and more and more about the sensual and less and less about what's good, what what's right, what's what's true intimacy about. Which is, you know, beyond the spiritual dimension, I think a it's truer than what we think about things. So that's sort of a, a something that you know, even beyond, like, if you don't believe in the moral framework of of a of a faith or of, of a culture, even right, it could be any culture. What is actually true is going to catch up with you eventually. Mm -hmm. right. Yes, it will. I got two books on my shelf. I need to read. They're both written by the same woman. She worked through her master's degree, making the money to pay for a master's degree by stripping. And then she wrote her master's thesis about it. And then she worked through her PhD by stripping. And then she wrote her PhD dissertation about it. I mean, she's got a legitimate PhD degree. Wow. And one of the things that she was studying was why would I, a happily married guy once a week, once every two weeks, whatever, come here and spend two or three hours, have a few drinks, put a few dollar bills and garters and go on to his wife. And so, uh, you know, she had a, a definite access to ask people questions like that, you know, and, and one of the conclusions that she came to from studying these guys, researching them was that it's like, I'm escaping reality for a little while. I know this is not real. Hmm. Pretend to like me, I give you money. You show me your body looks nice. So I escape reality for a little while. Then I go back to reality. Well, why would I want to escape reality? It's because something in reality is not fulfilling. There's something there that's, that's missing. Uh, and until somebody can figure out how to find that, they're going to keep looking in all the wrong places and having all the wrong results. It's uh it's such a need, you know, uh, my, my parents got divorced when I was 14. It really messed me up. You mean the origin story influenced the way I see relationship. It wasn't even sex per se, but it's relationships with the opposite gender, mm -hmm. which implies sex, obviously. And, um, you know, but I just didn't know how, right. I didn't know how to find all the pieces that makes things work until I got help and mentorship. And for me, it was, it was joining a church and getting into, into a, essentially an apprenticeship with someone who led their act together, basically, you know? Um, and it was remarkable because I, I was very accomplished professionally, and yet I had no clue. I was completely clueless about this piece. And, 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 and there's so many people out there that have that same gap, massive gap in ability, understanding, skill. I mean, and it's just it's just heartbreaking, right? Because that's it's, it's such a profound need in, in all of us. How do I figure this thing out? It's beyond and even deeper than that. I did lie in an intensive care room after overdosing. I did have the doctor tell me, you've got a 50% chance of being alive come daylight. Wow. And I remember lying there 
And I wasn't thinking about any of those women I had been with. I was thinking about my children. I was thinking about the woman I divorced. You know, that, that if, if I would let her, she'd be standing here right next to me right now. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I began to understand those things about how people wanted their family gathered around them when they died. It's so that you don't feel alone. You feel loved and cared about. I'm not suggesting everybody go out and overdose and get close to death to figure this out. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I am saying that sometimes it puts things in perspective for you. Like, wow, it's not about the sensual. And most everything in life is about relationships. Yes, most everything. I, I, I think I think it's true. And that's a good thing to know, like in, in the core of your being, right? Okay, I can, if that's truth, I can explore that truth. I can learn things. I can reorient yeah. myself. What Absolutely. you do is remarkable. And I, I, can you speak just before we say goodbye on ways that you provide help to, to people um, who are well, in, that, people... in that space of crisis and pain? Okay. Well, if people go to marriagehelper.com, that's like marriagehelper.com, marriagehelper most of our stuff can be found there. We also have a YouTube channel that has hundreds, and I mean hundreds of videos on it that's free. Thank you. This is great stuff. I've, I mean, I've sent um, more than one couple, several couples to you um, over, over the years that we've known each other. But uh, thanks again for coming. Uh, as always, please come back. There's no shortage of, of rabbit holes, you know. <laughs> that we can go into talking about sex because it's, it's such an integral it. part of the human condition, right? Uh, but you, you always, bring a lot always. of wisdom, a lot of humor, and a lot of humility to this conversation. I really, really appreciate that. Always enjoy being with you, Christian.